Welcome to our podcast channel, brought to you by the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore. Subscribe to our channel as we provide you with curated content and in-depth conversations by industry experts and leaders across Singapore, ASEAN and the United Kingdom. Today's podcast is brought to you in partnership with St. James's Place Wealth Management, a member company of the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore. As a FTSE 100 company, St. James's Place is one of the largest wealth management companies serving the international community living and working in Asia. Founded in 1991, it has grown rapidly to be the largest company in its sector in the UK and has offices in Singapore, Hong Kong and mainland China. Constantly evolving to meet the ever-changing needs of a diverse client base, St. James's Place specialises in providing highly personalised face-to-face advice to individuals and corporate clients to help them achieve their financial aspirations. To find out more information about St. James's Place Wealth Management, please visit www.sjp.asia. In this series, I'm fortunate to sit down with figureheads and business leaders as we talk about them for our members. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be welcomed by Her Excellency Cara Owen, the British High Commissioner to Singapore. Cara has been the British High Commissioner to Singapore since June 2019, arriving in Singapore from her appointment as the Director for the Americas at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Prior to that, she spent four years as the Deputy Head of Mission at the British Embassy in Paris during which she was awarded with a commander of the Royal Victorian Order by Her Majesty the Queen. Cara has a lifelong interest in the Southeast Asian region, which began during her teenage years when her parents lived in the Philippines and was cemented during her diplomatic postings to Hong Kong and Hanoi. Cara, a really warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's also nice to be talking to the patron of our chamber, and you have been hugely accessible. So, on behalf of all of our members, thank you for all of your support. And of course, um, from a personal perspective, a fellow northerner. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Although I think I can claim even further north than you. Slightly, yeah, 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 yeah. Cumbria, Cumbria from Manchester, absolutely. So you've been in post since June 2019. Can you describe the broad and deep relationship that's shared between the UK and Singapore? I think this is one of the things that attracted me to the job in the first place. It's a historic relationship that occupies a place in the UK imagination and also I think in Singapore imagination and psyche as well including because of our history obviously. I think from that shared history what really struck me as I was researching the role when I was bidding to become a High Commissioner here and also when I was preparing for the role is the fact that it's almost impossible to get your arms around the uh, links that there are between the two countries. But I think there are some things that we have in common, which are really strong. So, for example, the fact that we're both free and open economies and we're really committed free traders. And that translates through into how we act in the multilateral uh, diplomatic field in terms of uh, support for the WTO, free trade agreements, etc., etc. But there is also other things that are really important and shared between us around education. Very many Singaporeans have edu- been educated in the UK system. I hope that more UK citizens are going to have a chance to experience the Singapore universities in the future. That's something I'm really keen on. But I think there's no aspect of life in the UK or Singapore where you cannot find an active 
Brit or Singaporean. So we have two of the biggest financial services centres in the world that are um, influential in setting standards for the rest of the world to follow. We have uh, very developed higher education and research sectors. We are focusing on similar sectors for the future of our economies, tech, uh, life sciences, etc. So I think that is one of the things that really attracted me to the job in the first place. It's this historic depth, but also the breadth uh, of connections and relationships that we have between companies, between individuals, between institutions. And is that what really excites you about the relationship going forward? Are there, are there any aspects of the SG-UK partnership for the future that are, are really strong, compelling elements that, that are worth sort of highlighting? Yeah, I guess I've mentioned a couple of them. But if you think of what we're currently going through and what we've been through over the last few months, so something like the COVID pandemic hits. And I think that at a time like that, which for any country that is facing the pandemic, it's kind of, it's a sort of national crisis really, is the country up to, uh, how are we going to be able to cope with this situation? It's really significant who you reach for at times like that. And I think the UK and Singapore instinctively reach for each other on a number of fronts. Number one, sharing what we know about COVID medically. So we've got really close relationship between our chief medical advisors and our chief scientists. But also on the research front, researching vaccines, researching therapeutics, that's a really rich conversation, which I think leads me into something that makes me very excited about the relationship. What's brilliant about this relationship is, yes, it's historic, but it's utterly relevant and compelling for the future of the two countries because we are talking about issues and collaborating on issues that are massively relevant to our future. So the strength of our research and innovation relationship translates then into economic relationship and economic activity, as well as having a broader impact beyond our two countries. If you're talking about COVID again, it's entirely possible that work we do together or work individually that Singapore and the UK are doing could have a global impact, uh, not just on our two countries. So I think it's the intellectual strength and depth in both of the countries that mean that I have really high levels of confidence, both for the relationship itself, but also for the future of the two constituent parts of the countries that I know both the UK and Singapore are going to be really significant players in the future of this planet, the future of this world, and the future of the world economy. In terms of that, so Singapore's just had its general election. Grace Fu has been announced as the Minister for Sustainability and the Environment in a new ministry under the PM Lee government. With nearly half of the UK's electricity coming from low carbon sources and COP26 being a, a huge theme and being held in the UK next year, there, there must be some opportunities there in terms of collaboration. No, absolutely. So um, working on climate and sustainability is one of the priorities that we have agreed uh, between the UK and Singapore government. And I've been really struck since I've arrived here quite how much of my time, my team's time is spent on talking about the policy issues surrounding climate change. You know, how can each country take its own responsibility to reduce its carbon emissions and to operate uh, sustainable policies. So there's a huge policy exchange there. But also um, across every sector of the economy, we are having sustainability-related, climate-related, green-related conversations. I experienced my first ever visit by a senior British figure early July. It was the Lord Mayor of London. 
And in every single conversation he was having, be it with the Monetary Authority of Singapore, be it with fintechs, be it with the Sovereign Wealth Funds, uh, GIC and Tomasek, Green, and how you can make sure that the model of growth that we choose in future is green came up again and again and again and it does in my own conversations so it's relevant to the financial services sector it's relevant to research where there are real specialisms here around uh, sea level rise we're also working on things like carbon capture on electric vehicles all of the things that you would expect to advanced and high-tech players like Singapore and the UK to be talking about. And I think our companies are really seeing these um, opportunities as well. Our engineering consultancies have already been really big in this game already. Our banks are very big players in, um, they were early pioneers really in the area of green finance. And there is a really strong push by the Singapore government to make sure that green finance becomes more available, more accessible, and has higher levels of return to attract even more investment through those vehicles. So our companies are really uh, seeing the opportunities and I think you in the British Chamber and we in the High Commission are seeing an uptick of interest in the types of companies that put sustainability at the heart of what they're trying to achieve. That's not just for what we're doing here in Singapore. It's really striking to me that many companies are looking at Singapore as they have done in previous kind of industries and previous priorities. They're looking to Singapore, not only for what you can do here in this country, but also as an access point into the broader region. And that's exactly the kind of level of ambition I think both you and we are encouraging British companies to have here. No, it sounds, sounds really good. I think just with the launch of the Singapore FinTech Festival that happened earlier this week as well, really interesting to see that sort of the sustainability piece was, uh, was a really core cool piece through that as well. So a really important part. Boris Johnson recently announced the merger of the Department of International Development and the Foreign Office, uniting development and diplomacy in one new department that brings together Britain's international efforts. The Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office will be established in early September, I think. How does this move, support or impact on your activities as the High Commissioner and your team here in Singapore and more broadly the UK's international outlook going forward? I think it's alignment and integration and taking a really strategic whole government approach has been the watchword of the UK government for a while now. It's something that both the Prime Minister and the, the Foreign Secretary, the First Secretary of State, absolutely insist on and so do other government ministers They um, are absolutely right to say that only if a country looks right across all the tools that it has available internationally to be able to achieve what it wants to achieve, are they doing their maximum effort? And they're completely right. And I'm really proud to say here in Singapore, I sometimes think the High Commission, which has grown hugely over the last two years, as we have brought on more and more areas of expertise and uh, many people uh, work across the region from Singapore, from the High Commission. But we are effectively like Whitehall on the Singapore River. We're not quite on the river. That's not exactly the right phrase. Um, But um, you can find representatives of all, all the main Whitehall departments here. And I personally feel that I point to every single minister back in the UK cabinet in what I'm trying to do on behalf of the UK government here as the sort of senior UK government representative. So in a sense, joining up the Foreign Office and DFID is part of that overall alignment story. It's really making sure that we have our diplomacy and our development tools very closely integrated. 
so I think we've already we've already made a huge leap in that direction. The way we think is instinctively cross-government. And as we have looked across the region, along with my other colleagues across the region, other ambassadors and high commissioners in the region, and with Natalie Black, a trade commissioner that covers this region, and with our new ambassador to ASEAN, who's arrived last autumn, we all think both in a regional way and also in a cross-government way. And we try to think strategically about what is the best way we can use every single one of our assets. So I think it's an exciting moment for what is my home department. I joined the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in 1993. I think this is a really exciting moment. As with all mergers, we have to think very carefully about how we can bring the best of both departments to make an even better organisation. And I personally find that really exciting. DFID isn't uh, operating in a big way here in Singapore. You wouldn't expect it to because this yeah. is a rich country. But I will. I do expect them to continue to be active across the region. And again, integrating with all of the other stuff we do, be it around climate change or be it around business environment or other ways in which we're focusing on poverty reduction in the region. So supporting that aid and trade element here might be an opportunity to help with Singapore's access and growth across the region as well. So I think it's I think it's about what the UK effectively the level of partnership that the UK yeah. has uh, with this region. You may know that we've applied for dialogue partner status with ASEAN. That's something that diplomats get excited about, but sometimes it's quite hard for the person on the street to understand what that means. And what I think it means is it it's a really strong expression of how much the UK appreciates that our future interests are best served by being very strong partners with this region. It's a region of incredible growth. The population block is really big. Growth rates have traditionally been very impressive. There has been an amazing, over the last 50 years, there's been an amazing poverty reduction performance by this region. I think in many ways we see things in a very similar way. I was struck that during COVID, I think people were concerned that there were going to be supply chain interruptions and that there, there have been some companies have had to mm. cope with real challenges around supply chain. But in terms of this region staying open to each other, I'm quite impressed with the extent to which uh, they have retained that kind of openness. And it's those kinds of blocks, those kinds of economies that the UK is interested in working with in the future. Lots of opportunity here in ASEAN. And, and the UK obviously left the European Union on the on the 31st of January this year, beginning a new transition period that is set to end on the 31st of December, during which the UK and the EU negotiate in their future relationship. So to what extent are your team at the High Commission involved with that process and supporting that and, and helping businesses in the future to look at ASEAN as a, as a market for growth? So we're really active, and so are you, I know, David, at the Chamber. It's really important that my colleagues and I make their presence felt right across the UK. You know, the government has a strong levelling up agenda. That means that the kind of prosperity that we've seen in part of the countries has to be shared across the whole of the country. And a lot of that is going to come from jobs and growth and exports. So we make it our business and we're very active in trying to spread the message of where we see the opportunities here, which are the really buoyant sectors, uh, be it in Singapore or in the region, uh, you know, what's happening in the tech sector, which is one of those sectors in the UK, which isn't just concentrated 
in the southeast, you actually find amazing tech companies right across the country, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, the UK, the north, the south. I think I'm incredibly proud of the uh, ingenuity, the innovation of the tech sector and of the level of government support to try and make sure that those potentially world-beating companies uh, survive and thrive, even through challenging periods like we have now. So we are in regular touch with different regions across the UK. We do webinars along with you. We uh, talk regularly sector by sector or in geographical location to uh, try and make sure that people aren't ignoring this part of the world and that we're also demystifying it a little bit. You know, um, I think uh, it's, it's very natural for people to think of, I want to export and they think of somewhere geographically close possibly Europe, or where language isn't a problem, you know, so thinking about the States or Canada or Australia or New Zealand. But I think we really need to make sure that people don't automatically discount this region for whatever they don't know about it. So I think demystification is a big part of uh, what we do to try and encourage people to take the step uh, to export and to do business and to find partners here. It's not that much of a hard sell, actually. Once you get into the detail, I think people can really see it. But those of us who know a lot about it and the Chamber and its members are very generous in this approach in trying to share what we've all learned by living and working here. Yeah, definitely that shared piece and presenting a proposition that supports is, is it feel, feels very strong and it feels more powerful when we get everything sort of together. Do you foresee sort of future changes and challenges in the way that sort of countries operate together? It's quite, it's quite an interesting time, isn't it, with the US and the China relationship, the UK coming out of the European Union, you know, COVID has, has meant that a lot of the countries have sort of closed down and everybody's sort of staying in their own countries, not traveling around as much, but there's, there's still a global talent sort of workforce out there. Do you see that the way countries sort of operate is going to change going forwards? Yeah, so I, I, I don't think I've lived through a period in my life where so many questions are being posed about all of the assumptions we've made up yeah. be that, you know, what does the office look like? You know, what do you need in an office to make it functional? Uh, how do you find, recruit and onboard new staff in a way when you're actually not normally working together? So all of these assumptions that you've made, all of the easy shortcuts that you've had before are all being questioned. I think, I think also, um, you're right, it's a period of real kind of um, shift in geostrategically. A number of countries, a number of populations have made clear that there are some things that they really, really prize, including kind of democracy and openness. And uh, there are some challenges and tensions that are uh, emerging there. I think as a country, we have always, it's absolutely in our psyche, in our DNA, that we are internationally focused. And I don't expect uh, that to change for the UK. We have always uh, managed to do our best and achieve our most by having incredibly strong international partnerships. Um, So I would expect uh, that to continue. I do think we have to be imaginative, though. There are some things where, and some international uh, processes and systems that we've relied upon for a really long time, for example, if you look at the WTO, that has helped and protected countries like the UK and Singapore for years who appreciate rules-based systems. And I think if we look at it and if we're honest with ourselves, the WTO has been facing a really challenging period. 
But we really believe that if we reform it, having a good multilateral conversation about trade and the future of trade when trade is changing so much is exactly what we need to be doing. And on that, we're totally allied with Singapore. They have a similar viewpoint. And that is why we've put forward a UK candidate for the DG of WTO and Dr. Liam Cox, who, who has been He's had a very strong uh, UK political career, but his most recent post in government was as the International Trade Secretary. So it, it feels like the UK might be in a really interesting space, sort of with a, with a bit of deglobalisation happening in some elements of the world, the opportunity, and as you say, absolutely, you know, the ability to work with partners internationally is absolutely ingrained in, 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 in our DNA. This sounds like there's a really, really good opportunity there. Yeah, and especially, again, I've mentioned the tech sector. You know, one of the, some sectors you might have seen a bit of a, a temporary drop-off in the amount of interest while people were really thinking about their domestic operations. The tech sector, our team, your team, the number of queries we're getting mm. uh, from that sector about, I've developed this new product, which may have actually been accelerated by what's happened around COVID and some of yeah. the challenges that we've seen around COVID, be it around logistics or e-commerce. Again, what you mentioned before around um, sustainability, and how do you build back greener? And so people are spotting these opportunities and the tech sector is really looking, definitely looking beyond national boundaries for its growth and for its partnerships and for collaboration. So over the past five months, you've been heavily focused on supporting British expatriates affected by COVID-19, particularly around some of the entry restrictions that we found in Singapore. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about the work that you've been doing there and, and, and how you've been supporting British nationals here in Singapore? So I think we've all been conscious that COVID has produced real sort of human dilemma and human yeah. challenges. So on one level, there is the just basic health challenge and dilemma that we can see all over the world where people are losing loved ones. I think when COVID first started to emerge, what really struck me is that I was sitting here in Singapore where I had high levels of confidence in Singapore's health system, yeah. uh, high levels of confidence in the way that the government would manage it. Um, not all of the countries in the region have similarly strong health systems, uh, have the same resources that Singapore has available to cope with it. So when it first emerged, uh, one of the things that we were really focusing on in the High Commission is offering to support to some of our colleagues around the region. At the time that COVID struck and at the time that we brought in the Global Travel Advisory only to travel if it's absolutely necessary, we had something like 1.3 million Brits that were outside of the UK, not as residents. So imagine that's people that are doing a kind of longer or shorter breakaway from the UK. And those weren't rooted in the UK. So uh, there was a really major operation to support British nationals in getting them home at a time when commercial flights were shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. So there was an awful lot where we were trying to encourage airlines to continue to fly, um, airports to continue to stay open. And we did an awful lot like that to support my colleagues within the region as much as the community here in Singapore. The community here in Singapore, I think, is a fantastic community. I'm really proud of the British community here. They are very resilient. They are very self-sufficient. They make it their business to understand what makes Singapore tick and to work out how they can flourish in this country. But because Singapore takes so seriously the health of the people that are living here, the restrictions that they brought in to contain the virus naturally brought inconvenience and struggle to 
lots of people. So there were some families that were separated when the sort of drawbridge came up. Uh, they would have family members that were on the wrong side of the drawbridge, and even though they had their home here, um, they weren't able to get back. And I think you and we together, the Chamber and uh, the High Commission, this was something that we took really, really seriously. So speaking to the Singapore government, making it sure that they understood the scale and nature of the challenge, being open to what they were worrying about as well, uh, which are making sure that the health situation is assured uh, here in Singapore, but raising up to them the general case and the requirements for our residents to get back to their homes. Um, you know, they have made a home here for a shorter or longer amount of time and basically working in partnership with the Singapore government to try and encourage them to take those steps as soon as they possibly could and to communicate well with the community. And this isn't something, obviously, that you do by telling everybody blow by blow account of all the conversations that you've had. The yeah. Singapore government was always kind of open to us and I spoke to them respectfully but also really trying to be you know be very clear about some of the challenges that our community uh, was facing as a result of you know some some sensible measures that they wanted to have to control who came into the country um, but really making sure that they knew what the challenges were for a, an important community for them as well and you know, I, I'm delighted to say that the access that we have is, is really good. They were always ready to listen to what you and we were seeing. And while I guess we, we may have liked it if they moved a bit faster so that our families could find relief earlier, they did. Um, they were always accessible to hear uh, what we had to say and to our ideas. Have you got any advice just to reassure people here or that might be feeling, feeling a bit worried during this time? It's really important that we know what's out there. So within the British community, what I think of as the sort of British community organisations. So you and we have been having sort of every couple of weeks, we've been having yeah. a discussion, the British Chamber, the schools that have a kind of British background, uh, the British Club, the British Association, which we've done, I think, uh, amongst ourselves to make sure that we know how the community is feeling we've also got active as you said social media channels where people can get hold of us i know that some sometimes people have been frustrated that the solution they're seeking hasn't been delivered quickly enough i'm really conscious of that but i think what's really important what i really appreciate is the fact that through one or other of those channels the community is, is letting us know what are the things that they would like uh, support on and i'd like them to continue in that way Fantastic. Um, we're hoping we're hoping we're able to see you all soon. And and of course, you're in your your home finally. So Eden Hall's been recently refurbished. How are you how are you settling in? And I know the members are desperate to um uh, to come and see you. And it was unfortunate we weren't able to hold our AGM with you this year in person. But um, uh, one of the questions that my team was asking is, are you still going to have the fish and chips? <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good question. So I think there are certain elements. It's really interesting when you come into a historic relationship like this and you come into this. I'm sitting in Eaton Hall now and uh, the job that they have done on it to make it look kind of like a really strong modern representation of modern Britain within a heritage 
property is just fantastic. So I was so disappointed. I really thought, didn't we think for quite a long time that the first event that was going to happen at Eden Hall was going to be the Chambers AGM. And I thought that was utterly fitting because you have a lot of engaged and active members of the community, of the business community, which is so important to me and and how uh, I do my job and how how our team works, uh, coming through the doors. And I was going to be really proud to show off what is the it's like the British house, right? It's the British house in Singapore. So I think at the moment, of course, we are being very responsible. We are following the government guidelines. We are inviting people in very uh, small numbers. If there is a face-to-face meeting, which is what we should do, but we're face-to-face quite far apart, as you'd expect. But everybody who's coming through is showing real appreciation for the house. They're delighted that it's back. I can't wait. It's such a beautiful, flexible, historic building that I can't wait to use it again as a, as a showcase of everything that UK has to offer from brilliant thought leaders through to fantastic products, through to ministerial meetings. But you did ask me about the fish and chips. So I think I am incredibly proud, and I always have been actually, I'm incredibly proud of the UK food scene. I'm proud of the foodstuffs that we produce, um, that we export around the world, and that people absolutely love, uh, from Scotch whiskey to the world's best, I don't mind saying that we have the world's best variety of crisps. You know, so you take things like that, really astonishing meat, as many cheeses as France would like to boast, in as many varieties. Uh, I'm really proud of all of that. So I want to make sure that not only British produce is showcased as often as we possibly can at Eden Hall, uh, but also that British creativity is really there. And the UK food scene is is innovative. It's just like us. It's like our economy. It's innovative. It's exciting. It's fusion. It takes its inspiration from all kinds of places. It's really open-minded. And I want that to be evident at Eden Hall. But just as if, for some reason, the refurbishment didn't bring back a picture of Queen Elizabeth, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. If I didn't do that, I would get into terrible trouble with the community and it would be just plain wrong. Similarly, I think if Eden Hall didn't have the fish and chips, that would become a diplomatic incident. Because if people talk about what they've eaten at Eden Hall, they talk about amazing sausages and they talk about the fish and chips. So I think um, it would be uh, both brave and foolish for me to let the fish and chips drop. Fantastic. Can we tell a little bit about you? What, what, are, what are some of the challenges that you face in your role as High Commissioner? You must be spinning so many plates with, you know, having so many conversations. But what are some of the challenges that you face on your day-to-day basis? So actually, when you say, when you're talking about challenges, of course, there are elements of the job that are difficult or, or tricky or more demanding as they are with any other job. But that's not how I feel. I just feel that I'm in a position of enormous privilege. I think government is there to act and support and remove barriers and friction to allow everybody else who is brilliant to get on with what they do best. That's basically what my team is there to do. We try to make sure that if opportunities emerge, British companies, academic institutions, people, cultural organisations, spot them and can harness them. But as well, if there is a bit of grit in the system, it is our job to try and look at how can we use uh, government resources, government heft, 
to try and work through those barriers. But, you know, every day, David, it's just an enormous privilege. The people that I meet and the variety of people that I meet. One day, I can, I can have such varied days. I can go along and see a world-beating research collaboration. So say the Photonics Institute at NTU that has this absolutely amazingly advanced relationship with the Photonics Institute in Southampton University. And there are no other univer two universities that operate on photonics like those two universities do. That really is unique. Um, they don't double up on equipment. They pass projects between themselves. So I can start off my day doing something like that. I can then be going along and talking to uh, like a UK bus company that's running one of the franchises here in Singapore. And they're talking to me about how importing their own management philosophy has really changed the way the companies and the bus captains and everybody involved in running buses in Singapore are approaching their jobs. And then I can be talking to a, a young British writer that's come out to the Singapore Writers' Festival, the Literary Festival. Then you're meeting students who are interested in studying in the UK and you ask them why and they've got a really clear idea of why they're going to the UK because of the all-round offer, the strength of our higher education. So for me, that is all a privilege. The biggest challenge I've got, I think, is when you have such richness in front of you, how do you really prioritise and make sure that the resources that we've got, be that financial or human, here on behalf of UK taxpayers, are really focused on doing the things that are going to be most transformational for the relationship. And when you've got massive number of choices of things that could do some good, how do you really make sure that you're focusing on the truly transformational things? That's a challenge, but it's a really nice problem to have if you think about it. Yeah. Is, is, that, is that what really motivates you? Is that what really drives you? Yeah, yeah, I think so. So, so the, this relationship, this region really, really motivates me. Public service really motivates me. I like to think that from the moment I get up until the moment I go to bed, what I'm doing is thinking about how can my effort and my team's effort bring benefit to the UK and through doing so bring benefit to the relationship between the UK and Singapore. And I think the team feel that really strongly as well. The type of people that we attract, um, we get very, very bright people to come and work at the High Commission. A lot of them have inside them this idea of kind of public service and putting their best effort to the benefit of the UK and of the relationship altogether. Who, who do you turn to for support? Is there anybody that you pick up the phone to when you're you know, you've got some tough decisions to think about or you're looking at different areas or, or, or your development. Is there, is there someone that you pick up the phone to? That's a really brilliant question because in some ways being High Commissioner can sometimes, people have said to me before, it can be a little bit lonely. Yeah. Um, but I sort of knew that in advance. So I guess there are two things. Number one, I really appreciate the people within the community here who are generous with their insights into Singapore who are very happy to answer my questions and give frank feedback on whether or not they think what the High Commission is doing, what the UK government is doing, is uh, the best it can possibly be. I hugely appreciate those relationships and the generosity of the people within the community. But also throughout my career, I have developed a network of people who are either at the same stage as me, and we can pick up the phone and say, 
I've never experienced this before. It feels a bit hard. This is where my guts are going. Have you done it before? What did you, uh, how did you approach it? Are there any risks I'm not seeing? Or who are slightly ahead of me and who have experienced a bit more and can see it from an from a even more senior level. And one of the lovely things about working in the UK government is again people's generosity. And this isn't this isn't particularly government, but I have definitely found it through my career. If you ask for um, help and support or to talk something through, people are really generous and are, are willing to do it. I think the final thing I'd say is what really struck me, you did a super event on how work is changing and how leaders need to be crisis and on the panel we had a really varied bunch of people including somebody from Facebook there was somebody from the uh, Singapore government and what really struck me is at the end of the day most organizations are about people um, the kind of organizations that we work in yes some of some of your members will have high-tech machinery and high-tech R&D, but at the end of the day, it's about leading people. And in that area, there, there is more that is similar between the private and public sector than there is that divides us. And there is more that is similar really between the UK and Singapore than there is that divides us. And when you do get some downtime, what, what, what do you do? Yeah, so uh, you referenced at the top of the podcast uh, that I'm a northerner. I come from Cumbria. Uh, so uh, what I didn't have in my upbringing was big towns and cities. What I did have was absolutely loads and loads of countryside and outdoors. Yeah. So when I have downtime, that's what I like to do. I like to explore Singapore. It's a brilliant place to explore. I've got two kids and we always find something fun to do in Singapore. But I really do like to find, I've taken up mountain biking. So, well, not taken up, I've rediscovered with my kids mountain biking. And I'm really enjoying that. I'm possibly enjoying it slightly more than they are, but they will enjoy it. And then the brilliant thing about Singapore is after you've absolutely killed yourself on doing some mountain biking, you can go off and find some really fantastic food at any price point of any cuisine. And that is a real pleasure. Um, But even in, you know, even in uh, Circuit Breaker, I found micro ways to do those same things, be it with my daily solitary walk uh, and appreciating the greenery that we have here and the birds and the butterflies, or, you know, doing food delivery. So um, I don't find it hard to find things to do in downtime. You've been really visible. And when you took the post up in June last year, I was actively following you on Twitter, seeing where you were going and trialling all the food. And you were, you, were, you were amazing at getting out into the community. Have you got a favourite Singapore dish? So I think it's really, it, you know, it's really hard to get past my love of carrot cake, I have to say. <laughs> So there are so many, there are so many answers to that. It depends what time of day it is and what yeah. mood I'm in. So there'll be some mornings when only Nisiam will do, you know. Um, carrot cake, I think, is amazing. Uh, seafood, I absolutely uh, love. But, you know, everything. So I can think of somewhere to go for, oh, I had amazing porridge, amazing congee there. Um, I've lived in Asia a long time. In my eating habits, I'm probably 80% Asian, I would have said, Asian cuisine, and so, so is my family. Uh, so it's a real pleasure. The only, the, only, um, the only thing you've got to watch, I guess, is that I've got to do all of that mountain biking, otherwise this will become a 20-kilo posting. Fantastic. If we could offer you the British Chamber of Commerce Singapore time machine to transport you back to a point in your career where you would look at yourself and give yourself some advice that you know now, when would it be and what advice would you give yourself? That is such a great question for which I wasn't prepared. Sorry, yeah, yeah, (laughs) that is a really great question. 
I think I would probably go back to my first month in the foreign office, I would say. So that's going back quite a long time. Let's okay. And I would talk uh, to that young woman and uh, who was experiencing a sort of quite a dislocating experience. So coming into the foreign office uh, where I think it has such strong traditions and it has such a strong culture and uh, it was a lot less diverse then than it is now. And that diversity has brought increasing strength. I mean, it's a really completely different organisation to the one that I joined, uh, but we've still got a long way to go on a number of um, areas. But I would say to that person, I know you're feeling now like you don't fit in. Keep yourself, continue to be yourself, focus on making yourself the best you can possibly be in an authentic way, keep on being yourself and that will be the thing that will take you through and that will be the thing uh, that will allow you to progress within the organisation. Because at the beginning, that's not how it felt to me. I couldn't see that. I couldn't see anybody ahead of me that looked like me, that sounded like me, that seemed to have the same sort of life view as I had. And it was only really when I was in my kind of mid-30s probably, when the light bulb went on in my head, that I couldn't I sh- couldn't and shouldn't be a really bad copy of the other people that I could see. The only way I could progress and be as good as I could be was by being myself. Um, uh, and knowing what the downsides of that are, I'm trying the best to manage it, but yeah. really, really genuinely kind of being myself and belonging in the front office and belonging in the UK's overseas network uh, in that way. Amazing. And I guess the sort of the final framing question is, if you could look back on your time in Singapore, so forecasting into the future, what legacy or impact would you like to have made as the High Commissioner in Singapore? You started this conversation around climate and sustainability, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, there are so many. There are so many. I'm going to have to, just as I said, that the biggest challenge is choosing which are the most transformational things. So um, so I, I have five focus areas, I guess, that I'm really making sure that I'm, my team and I are spending the time on. First one is around trade. So having taken concrete steps to make sure that in the way current trade works, and as we can see, new types of trade arrangements that we in Singapore have worked together to be as innovative as we possibly can to unleash the possibility of our two private sectors. So that would be the first thing. Climate and sustainability, we started uh, the interview asking about that. So I think we've always had a really good relationship with Singapore around climate, including during the climate negotiations. Mm-hmm. But I think we're at a really special point. And I think the UK and Singapore together can demonstrate how fast and how far we can go to um, increase the amount of green finance available for those who are seeking investment for major projects or for their company. And I think by the time I leave in a few years' time, that will look very different to what it looks like today. And I really think not just for our two countries, but for the regions that we sit in and even more broadly for the world, we'll have contributed something by working together to accelerate the availability of uh, green finance. And I also think our research collaboration will have found some answers to some real challenges around uh, sustainability, be it around batteries, be it around um, carbon capture, be it around how do you set up carbon trading. Um, There's so much that we could do there. Tech, 
I think we'll have fantastic unicorns born in both countries that are operating in the other. Knowledge and education. I want more UK students to be coming out to this part of the world to get early experience of this part of the world, which will give them confidence later to come back and to trade and to invest and seek partnerships here. And then our final area focuses on security and resilience, where we have really sophisticated conversations with them uh, around defence and different aspects of defence, but also around how we kind of defend our democracies, uh, I guess. But I think some of the some of the bits around climate and sustainability, you can tell I feel really passionate about, and I really, really think it's going to happen. And I really think that the, uh, both governments are absolutely pointing in that direction. Hi, Commissioner. Thank you so much for sharing about your role, about yourself, about the, the way the UK is operating here in Singapore. I really appreciate your time and we very much look forward to seeing you when we can. David, it was really fantastic for you to pose all those questions to me. I really enjoyed it and uh, I, I'll be very grateful if members listen to the end. It'd be really nice to have that connection with them. Super. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can share our podcasts and tag us in with the hashtag BritJamSG on Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn. For more information on the British Chamber of Commerce in Singapore, please visit www.britcham.org.sg or should you wish to get involved with our podcasts, please feel free to contact us at info at